Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here on the line with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. We are here. We remain at home. There remain no movie theaters, uh, and there remain still lots of things to talk about, which I am increasingly grateful for, and imagine you guys maybe are as well, that there's some some way to bring movies into our lives and discuss them, even though it feels like the entire world is on pause. Um, we have another installment of our Essentials series. We all watch Singing in the Rain, and we'll be talking about it later on, and also giving you the next four titles that will be up for consideration for next week's episode as we continue kind of our... I guess our like mini film school, which is maybe we should have been um, calling ourselves professors this whole time. And then uh, on the TV front, we also have an interview that Richard did with Laura Linney, who is a um, one of she's a co-star of Ozark. But uh, as I understand from listening to the interview, Richard, she's really kind of emerging as a major force on this show, which I think it came back onto Netflix last week. It's available for everybody to watch. Right, Richard? Oh, yeah, it's all on Netflix. Um, and this is the season, you know, three seasons in where you're like, oh, this is why Oscar nominated actress Laura Linney signed on for the show. <laughs> I mean, she's been yeah. good for the past two seasons, but this one is really where she gets the meaty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, have, so a, we'll, I have a question. Can I ask yeah. a, insert a, a question here? If you crapped out of the first season and didn't bother with the second season, can you just watch the third season or do you have to go back and catch up? I think you'd be pretty Let's confused say because someone okay. <laughs> there's a lot of litigating of stuff that happened previously. Um, so it, I think it, at the bare minimum, you'd have to like read like a wiki or something about what happened. But maybe that would be enough. Yeah, that sounds faster. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> but like you're a made of time bite. these days, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Um, well, Richard, you set us up for uh, the beginning of the show where there is some news from the entertainment industry to catch up on. And I personally, after watching far more of Quibi than I expected to, uh, I'm dying to talk about Quibi. Richard, maybe you should start, though, since you uh, you reviewed the entire service for us for VF.com. And I, I guess it was quick bites, so maybe it wasn't as arduous as it sounds. It went it went fairly quickly, yes. I mean, there is a lot there. I think they launched with 50 new shows or movies broken up into chapters. However, they're kind of classifying things. But yeah, for those who don't know, it's a new streaming platform only for mobile. So, you know, smartphones and tablets, mostly smartphones, though, I think it's, you know, it was it's from the brain of Jeffrey Katzenberg, a mega producer, uh, Meg Whitman, formerly of eBay as a CEO. It has it was able to attract a lot of top talent. Reese Witherspoon's husband, Jim Toth, is involved. It's like a list, you know, sort of molten core of Hollywood doing a tech startup, which is kind of a cursed description of anything um and in, in fact i found much of the content to be well actually cursed sounds interesting I, I think a lot of the content is just a little bit like huh why is this here there are a couple st- standouts but on the whole i think this is a weird kind of first salvo of content to launch your big 1.6 billion dollar platform um it just f- feels a little bit inconsequential let's say 
the thing that I keep thinking of is that it's trying to compete with YouTube, which is something everyone is already familiar with watching on their phones and in uh, in quick bites. Uh, but Richard, you know way more about YouTube than I do. Does it feel like a like that's what it's coming for? And and how does it stand up to stuff on YouTube that people already know and like and watch? For I mean, free. to be perfectly honest, it feels like it's more competing with like in-flight video screens. <laughs> like it's because it's just <laughs> everything is so static and fixed. It's not like I mean, YouTube, for all its good and bad, is this riot of just like self-uploaded things, you know, with some minor parameters in there, no pornography, and you know, at least some <laughs> Nazi content is taken down. But like uh, Quibi, Quibi, <laughs> Quibi has no Nazi content. <laughs> Not, not not so far, thankfully. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's just, it, it's much more corporate. I mean, not everything on the platform is from a big studio. There are some more like, um, you know, smaller production companies that have various shows on there. But, you know, some of it is from big names and is meant to be this kind of, you know, the, the old guard of Hollywood sort of trying to, I think, co-opt a bit of the new you know, web 3.0, wherever we're at kind of energy, but applying more traditional filmmaking, storytelling concepts to that. And to that end, it ends up feeling more like a gimmick, like you're watching a not very good movie that's arbitrarily chopped up into seven or eight or nine minute pieces. It doesn't feel like this yet. I mean, this could happen, but it doesn't yet feel like there's n- innovative storytelling exactly happening. That's more on the on the scripted side. On the on the um, re- more reality non scripted side, I think you see a little bit more innovation in terms of format. Um, but it still feels very much in the beta testing stage, and I'm not quite sure it was ready for prime time when it was released on April sixth. It's interesting because um, because. I got to spend about an hour playing with Quibi content, I guess, a few weeks ago. I don't. I guess I can say this. Jeffrey Katzenberg came and showed it to some editors at, at Connie Nass. You and, had an in-person um, meeting. What a what a time yeah, travel this is. Yeah, and he, remember and, those? <laughs> I don't think. Yeah, exactly. Remember that. Um, so, I mean, I I definitely think that the folks at Quibi think that they are, you know, innovating in terms of the storytelling. They they want to be doing that. They know they need to do that. So I think it's interesting, Richard, that that didn't work for you. And, and I don't feel like I spent enough time with the scripted series to really know. And I, I, think, I think I found myself drawn more to the reality series in the first thing. I think what was interesting, especially with Katzenberg being in the room where you sort of the undeniable track record of Katzenberg, you know, it was it was possible to imagine that those old techniques of Hollywood, and you mentioned some of them, but I think one of the biggest ones is um, is talent and fan bases and leveraging those to kind of get attention and win people over and get them to, you know, whatever it is, come to your movie or in this case, download your app. I'm really, really curious to see how this goes. I think a lot of people in the media have been sort of basically joking about this thing as a giant folly for a long time. In that moment, I kind of thought, well, maybe this will work. You know, these are very powerful techniques, but I'm really curious to see if, you know, they, they seem to have unlimited resources, which is handy. And the other thing that, that um, you know, they're very proud of is this technology that that I found like it was fine, this kind of seamless technology where you turn the phone and, you know, it looks full screen on either vertical or horizontal. They really, really are very, very proud of that. To me, maybe because I'd heard a fair amount of hype about it, when I looked at it, I was like, okay, you know, like, it's it's fine. It's seamless. Well, I think but- it's that you, yeah, I think it's that it's seamless that must be went, went so hard because you flip your phone back and forth and back and forth and it always just keeps up and it looks good. And like they clearly had to work yeah. really hard to like have everything in the right aspect ratio and to crop it. And sometimes they're using different takes like in your hand. It feels so easy, but you kind of realize how much work had to go into making it seem easy. Well, yeah. right. And that amount of work, you know, I, I went to something at Sundance that was kind of a presentation and, you know, I was holding my phone horizontally to get, you know, the full more movie, you know, kind of picture. And someone from the company was like, you know, you can turn it this way. And I was like, but why would I want to? Because it turns everything into kind of a tight close up. <laughs> but the thing about it, it is an accomplishment in terms of like, um, it's a it's an engineering feat for sure. But the way that the careful way these things had to be filmed and edited and all that 
makes it that much less open source than YouTube. You know, it, it, the, the, right. the barrier to mm. entry for Quibi is so high that, you know, it has to be through a sort of formal channel, which I think kind of removes the the, 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 the sense of freedom it's supposed to evoke um, because it feels very closed off, very closed circuit. So um, I'll be curious to see in the future. I think that like just with YouTube, though, it took a while for people using that platform to figure out really how to use it in terms of what kind of content was going to work, what length, you know, at first it was every video had to be under five minutes. Now it's most videos are over 10 kind of by design. Um, I think that Quibi could eventually get to a point of experimentation that, that bears fruit. It's just a matter of how open they make it to, um, you know, outside people or if it's all going to be controlled by the sort of tastemakers within the company. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, and you look at it. I mean, the other obvious contrast is TikTok, which is just like the entire world is making these crazy videos. And the, you know, the user experience is all about reducing any friction and, and, or anything that would kind of look feel like a step or like you're signing up or you have to follow anybody. It's like you're immediately plunged into content. And then, you know, very, very easily you can make your own and start sharing them and, and getting them looked at. So, I mean, the question is, like, are we living in a TikTok world and ideas like Quibi don't make sense? Or are we living in a smartphone world where all these things can live, you know, side by side? I'm curious to see how it all how it all plays out. I was saying before we started recording that the one Quibi, I, I didn't watch as much as Richard did. I did watch some of the dramas, which I would agree don't work as well. But the um, the reality show Dishmantled, which is uh, hosted by Titus Burgess, which uh, makes it feel like a they know it's a 30 Rock joke and kind of leaning into it. And um, the contestants stand in hazmat suits in a tube and have the, uh, the dish shot at them through a cannon. And they then have to like, they're blind and they have to taste the food and figure out what they're supposed to recreate and then cook it. And it's all eight minutes long. And the first episode, the uh, guest judges are Dan Levy from Schitt's Creek and Anthony from Queer Eye, um, which is kind of a perfect combination. I enjoyed it immensely, and it does feel like it's working with the format. It's saying, okay, we don't want good composition. We want something quick. We want something kind of dumb that you can't look away from. This is what we're going to do. Um, and I feel like something like that might be more of what Quibi starts leaning into. Well, and I, I mean, that's an interesting point, too, is like, is to both of your points, you know, how much are they going to use the data? Presumably, they're going to use the data. And it may be that pretty quickly, Jeffrey Katzenberg's ideas about, you know, what constitutes a high end piece of content that's worthy of his platform, they may be pushed aside, certainly, they'll be informed by the data, they may be fully pushed aside, where people are like, you know what, let us just make the stuff that people want on this thing. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. I mean, think about how Netflix has leaned into true crime and keeps finding its new, you know, version of Tiger King over and over again because they did. I mean, they still make, you know, the House of Cardsy stuff, but they they've certainly learned. Right, that date that user data is very very powerful. If you can get an installed user base <laughs> that's big enough to <laughs> tell you anything. Well, speaking of the financials of it, you know, right now it's I think it's three months for free. Then it'll be five ninety nine a month with ads, and then I think more without. I saw a little bit on Twitter, kind of when the, the, the service launched earlier this week, um, that one major quibby quibble <laughs> is that there is a, a feeling among people in um, entertainment industry unions, SAG, AFTRA, you know, various other things, that part of the, the breaking up the content into short chunks is a way to exploit certain uh, weaknesses in the, in labor contracts that unions have established with Hollywood in terms of what is actually a movie or a TV show versus a web short and all that stuff. So there is some concern I've seen that one of the darker motivations of this is to basically create a way to pay everyone making these things a lot less. Um, I don't know the, enough about that to really say either way, but I think it's something to keep an eye on while also, you know, admiring both the technolo technological achievement and have people having shakshuka blown up in their faces, being entertaining, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Spoiler for the first episode of Dishmantled. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> uh, Joanna, did you watch a Quibi at all? I did not, but if you asked me if that was a real game show or something from like a Hunger Games slash like idiocracy sort of mm -hmm. future world, I would not be able to tell you one from yeah. the other. And yet so. I think you would like it. I probably would. <laughs> um, okay. Well, as we continue to catch up on uh, on other Hollywood news, I did want to talk about 
The um, Disney's last week announcement that they would uh, set a bunch of new release dates for a bunch of their movies. Um, the main thing I find interesting about it is that it just creates this huge um, domino effect with all of the Marvel movies. Anthony Bresnikan wrote about it for next week that like we have movies like Thor Love and Thunder, which is like get, now getting pushed to 2022. Like there's all of these uh, different effects of it. I mean, Disney announcing all this at once is just them saying out loud what everyone else is going to have to do eventually. But um, I don't know. Does it tell you guys anything about when in the world we're going to go to the movies again? I'm always curious, like, what they know. You know what I mean? Like, who are they consulting to get their dates? Because when they pick, like, a June date or a July date or later, you know, like, what what does Disney know that I don't know about uh, <laughs> when, when it's safe to go back in the water? Well, know? Bob Iger knew um, enough to resign right before the coronavirus crisis hit. So um, exactly. maybe they do have special knowledge of things. I just want to know how Walt Disney's frozen head comes into this. That's that's, that's my... <laughs> Walt Disney's frozen head has seen the future yeah. and has come back. I think the thing, you know, about all these things delayed, and I've said it now, I think every week <laughs> that we've been doing this, is, but it, it's now seeming like more and more of a concrete reality, is that, you know, we're going to have that, you know, Wizard of Oz, we're out of the woods moment, you know, when we can all go out to a restaurant or a play or whatever, but nothing's really going to be open, including, I don't, like, there's not going to be a lot of movies to see. Um, and I'm curious yeah. to see how long that kind of rolls out or, and if it's even possible, if things are better than expected you know, these studios could change their mind and be like, oh, no, just kidding. It's coming out next month. I don't I don't think that's very likely given marketing strategies and all that. But yeah, I think we I think we're going to have a pretty empty run there for a while. And it's a little bit sad to think that just as we can, you know, go do things, there's not going to be a lot for us to do. Yeah. Bring back the drive-ins. Is that, did we talk about that on this podcast last week? I think drive-ins I are still open. Oh, I, I have there heard that drive-ins are doing well. Like, I don't know what the logistics are, but yes, I have. I have heard that. I don't know what they're playing though. Well, I think there are, yeah, there are 200 drive-ins or something in the country, which yeah. is like four per state. It's not none, but it's not yeah. a lot. It's not a lot, no. But um, yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, drive-ins have for years run off of like second run. So they do a lot of like second run movies and stuff like that or classics and stuff like that. Um, Placing yeah. in the rain. Placing in the rain. Boulevard. Yeah. What oh, a joy. Scene of the rain would be a fantastic drive-in movie right now. Yeah. The drive-in near me, I just looked up, is in fact closed right now, and as is the one uh, in South Carolina near where I grew up. So maybe the drive-ins are also uh, being forced to close with all the stay-at-home orders. I think it probably depends on the state. Um, I'm sure the California ones are closed. But um, just generally, like, I got really excited by the idea of going to a drive-in movie uh, when we can go outside again. but yeah, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? It all, it all sort of depends on the timeline, and um, that's not a great answer. But um, what would be the downside? Um, here's a question for you guys. What would be the downside of sort of just a very, very crowded fall of a lot of options? Would it be better to crowd the fall, or would it be better to push everything back, 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 you know? Well, this probably leads us into the next thing we're going to talk about, the Academy um, kind of pushing back their upcoming board meeting and whether or not they'll wind up discussing the potentials for nominations. And I think a crowded fall is a huge uh, trouble for Oscar movies because the ability to build buzz and get people like us to talk about them or get people to go see them is diminished when there's so much competition all at once. It's possible, on the other hand, that um, you could view it kind of like the uh, Democratic primary, where the fact that it's crowded makes it sort of interesting and something that everyone pays attention to. Um, And that you might, you know, that that there might be sort of more interest in the movies that come out and have to jostle for position this year because the movies were, you know, off for a while and they're back. I don't know. I mean, I feel like a canny, a canny um, publicity person could at least approach it that way. You know, obviously, if the movie is bad um, and not sort of spectacularly, egregiously, interestingly bad, it's it, it's not going to be good for it. But it may be that that you could take advantage of a certain interest in like, all right, well, let's bring the movies back. What are they all like? Let's get back into it. Yeah. I was just saying, if we can if we can handle you know like forty two Netflix shows debuting every Friday uh, or you know, shows <laughs> and movies, I think we could handle like a kind of busier, more robust fall than we're used to. Um, I guess the other concern would be that you know this thing is supposed to maybe resurface in November, starting in November for another kind of wave, and yeah. so that might make people skittish. But like, 
I, I don't know. It, it, it seems, imp- I mean, I was just looking like you know, the, the Wes Anderson movie got pushed back to October and, you know, maybe that's not a set day. Maybe that's kind of a hopeful date. I don't know. But like, I think that a lot of people will be, would be ready for a kind of onslaught of things, especially if it's the fall and it's quote unquote, the good stuff, you know, um, you know, at least people who listen to this show probably would be all game to, to be, you know, if they had the money to, to go see a couple movies every weekend. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, speaking of money, I don't think there's going to, I think there will, if I had to guess, there will be even less box office money available this fall and maybe for the foreseeable future. Um, but I think that for in terms of buzz, like if your goal is to win an Oscar, I feel like it could be an interesting time to be in that mix. If your goal is to make money at the box office, I think this fall is going to be really hard. Well, and that makes me, the Netflix comparison that you brought up, Richard, like, is everyone just going to accept that VOD is the one way to get anyone to see their movies, even at that point? Um, like, not even just a resurgence, but like, if that going, like, how safe are people going to feel going anywhere, going to screenings, anything like that? Um, yeah, like, I, are you going to sit in a crowded theater right now before there's a vaccine and this thing has been eradicated? Like, I mean, probably I not. I want to, maybe. but also, Yeah. Um, and I think that that will depend on the Academy being willing to bend the rules, um, which we have yet to see if they're actually willing to do that. Well, one one other indicator, maybe a small kind of industry indicator that um, that this VOD thing is becoming more formalized, I guess, is that I've noticed with a couple, um, not, not big, big movies, but smaller movies that are still planning to VOD release, um, they're not just sending a link to critics, you know, that they can watch whenever. They're now scheduling these kind of virtual screening times. So you, I haven't done one yet, but you log in all at the same time and someone right. at, in, in a central HQ hmm. presses play and you watch it for those two wow. hours. And it, so it's like going to a screening. So it seems like they are definitely trying to uh, come up with a, a sort of a more planned out uh, process for all of this rather than just willy-nilly sending out links that in theory people could forward to other people and all that. So yeah, maybe the, internally there is some, you know, they're, they're really digging in and kind of embracing this as one of the new normals. That's smart too. I mean, as everyone gets used to Zoom and kind of scheduling their lives of a time to be on their computer, it would make sense that like we can adapt to that as a semi-normal way to see this stuff. Yeah, I kind of whined about it with a, another friend who's a critic at another publication. And then a more like, during this kind of whining session over text, I was like, but wait, won't it be nice to have plans? Won't it be nice to have something to do at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I, that's the luxury of me not having children or anything that, you know, that I need to take care of. But like, um, but yeah, so I don't know, maybe maybe kind of giving us that that sort of structure is not just beneficial for the industry in whatever way it is, but also for us on the other side in terms of just like letting a schedule return to normal uh, or at least as close to normal as we can. Well, and one strategy I've seen for VOD release is like various online online influencers sounds so gross, but like people, people who are influential in, in the film world on film, Twitter, et cetera, uh, running these like live tweets of new releases. So like maybe that's the new normal is like, Hey, uh, you know, distributors, studios, if you want to debut a, a splashy new movie on VOD and have the little gold men hosts live tweet um, the premiere or something like that, let us know. That's are, you, how... are, you, are you promoting us for a job? I mean, why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just trying to make us essential employees. Um, but, you know, it's like... Um, that it's it's trying to capture that spirit of collaborative viewing. Um, obviously, tweeting about a movie and watching it at the same time is is not the ideal way to consume cinema, but um, you know needs must maybe sometimes. So I don't know. That's just something I've been seeing. Like with, I think the Alamo ran something like that. Alicia Malone uh, ran something like that. So um, you know perhaps that's an approach uh, that we might see more of. Okay, to pivot from our uh, current mess to the past and to a a vision of Hollywood in which uh, there really was no mess and everything could be kind of easily solved, even the transition to talkies. Um, We're talking about Singing in the Rain this week. It is a movie I've seen a ton, um, especially when it was on um, Filmstruck. I watched it a lot, so I almost felt like kind of embarrassed going back and rewatching this because um, there's so many other classic musicals that I haven't seen. Um, but it did feel like the ultimate comfort food to dig into, which is maybe why I'm not surprised it won our poll. Joanna, maybe I want to start with you. Did you also find the um, the pleasure of sinking into a warm bath of watching Singing in the Rain? 
Yeah, it was delightful. Yeah, and it was pouring rain here yesterday when I was watching it, so it was perfect, <laughs> perfect ambiance. Uh, yeah, this is a movie I've seen one gajillion times, uh, and I rem- I was remembering that I owned the soundtrack on cassette uh, as a kid. Uh, cassette, wow. Kids. Uh, yeah, and um, I have a memory of a, like a fa- we took a family vacation to Hawaii in like fifth grade, and all I did was like sit on the beach and listen to. <laughs> singing in the rain soundtrack on my Walkman um, because I was an incredibly cool kid. Um, I'm sure your parents so, were so glad they dragged you all the way to Hawaii for you to do that. They actually got, they got really mad at me. Uh, I also watched, <laughs> I also watched Showboat at one point. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's who I was as a kid. Yeah, I, I like every single word of every single song I know because and I have like I'm, I'm immediately transported to Hawaiian Beach listening to it for some reason. Yeah, I mean, like what a, what an incredible musical we I'm, I, I think it's kind of fun that our films two weeks in a row have been, you know, movies that are about the film industry. I think that's a kind of fun thing for us to do. And uh, th- this also not in the same sort of poison pen letter as Sunset Boulevard, but this also, uh, you know, is is jabbing at Hollywood and and some of the tropes uh, of, of the silent era, you know, so a little removed from when this uh, film was made, but just, you know, just the way it starts off with a red carpet event and you see these like archetypes um, hop out of a car, one of which played by Rita Moreno as like the flapper girl or whatever. Um, that's just like a fun, a fun attitude to take for this uh, film that was very much like of the studio system, you know? One thing that I think uh, people don't necessarily realize about Singing in the Rain, uh, which is one of my favorite musical facts, uh, is that it is essentially a jukebox musical. Um, Arthur Freed, who, you know, uh, was a producer at MGM, uh, the Freed unit was famous for producing all these lavish MGM musicals. Um, He wrote most of the songs um, earlier in his career, and he gave a bunch of his songs to Comden Green, the screenwriters, and said, like, make me a musical out of some of my songs. (laughs) that I can then get the money from the songs being hits. So stuff like Singing in the Rain, etc. were definitely not written for, you know, the the plot was hung around these songs, um, which is a kind of musical making that musical snobs like myself now sometimes look down our nose at uh, the idea of a jukebox musical, like Mamma Mia is a jukebox musical, even though I love Mamma Mia. But um, but that's just, I, I think people don't know that about Singing in the Rain, which I think is a fun fact. That explains yeah. how um, at the end the composer can say, "Well, what are you going to sing?" And she can say, "Singing in the rain," and then they play it. <laughs> about yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, I find that one of the things that's inspiring about it, but maybe also, and I want to hear Mike as the uh, the singing in the rain skeptic. But um, I like the fact that it it emerged from the most cynical motivation, being like, "We got all these songs, we own them, people like them, put them in a movie," um, and they managed to make something kind of wonderful out of it anyway. Um, I feel like that's the power of so many like big old studio movies and MGM in particular. Particular, they were this machine. They were so fine-tuned to make movies that people watched and liked. And then, like, no one was considering film and art at that point. Like, they would just lose movies all the time. And yet, in the process of doing that, because of performances and because of clever writing, like, Singing in the Rain manages to stand the test of time so well. It, it feels to me like an example of what Hollywood can do at its best when it's trying to make a ton of money, but also make something great in the process. Wait, so Mike... Mike, you don't like singing in the rain? Hit me, hit me with your contrarian well, take. To be, to be <laughs> perfectly honest, I've never saw singing in the rain before, um, and never had any interest in seeing singing in the rain before. Um, I obviously saw the um, the scene where Gene Kelly is singing in the rain, which has always seemed fine. I feel like I feel like they play that in like an Oscars, um, you know, montage every year, but. And uh, something weird happened where, um, you know, we're watching a lot of movies and stuff here at uh, at Shez Hogan. And um, <laughs> after Sunset Boulevard, I got sort of erroneously excited about the 50s and thought maybe, you know, maybe the 50s are better than I had always thought. Because I always thought the 50s were just like horrible. Um, and I tried like, to watch thinking some, the fifties like, are like cooler and more like a cynical. Yeah, than, maybe yeah. they're more interesting than I thought. And then I tried to watch... Um, uh, some like it hot and just had to shut it off after about 10 minutes because um, it was just so loud. Or maybe 20 minutes. And then um, and then I watched <laughs> The Searchers and I'm like, I mean, I know that this is great, but like it's so freaking reactionary. Um, and, you know, there's just like there's a lot of problems with it. It's like you're really signing on to an incredibly screwed up worldview that we that we are still kind of dealing with today. And they were like inventing it. You know, the searchers um, being based on like the idea that Natalie Wood uh, having sex with a Native American would be like the worst 
think was so horrific. Her. Yes, yeah. that it had to just like you know. I mean, I mean, look, it, it, things are more complicated than than maybe we all give him credit. But just the whole John Wayne. I mean, it's complicating the John Wayne persona, but it's also very much sort of you know elevating it and presenting it. And it's interesting, but it's kind of annoying. And then so then to just have to sit down and then watch another sort of big fifties movie. That is, you know, and so so early on watching it, I'm just I was just slightly against my will and really kind of keying in on all of the things that are whatever. I mean, politically incorrect, racist, misogynistic, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so it took about 20 minutes to sink into the warm bath. Um, it helped that I was I was, uh, you know, as one does um, when one is watching against one's will, um, Wikipediaing uh, Gene Kelly and realizing that he was a total badass who like took on the House on Amer- American Activities Committee and stood up for his wife, who was a um, uh, suspected communist and turned out to be like he's like a new hero of mine Irish American Yankee fan who uh, stood up for the right stuff um, <laughs> so that was helping and then eventually you know you do get you do get sucked in I mean early on I was just like what was the weird fixation with these Debbie Reynolds type sort of you know um, uh, clean cut girls in the 50s like I, I it just feels like I, I couldn't separate the thought of of fifties culture as this traumatized reaction to um, to the forties and even the thirties, which I get. I mean, those were very very difficult times, but it just it sometimes it feels like the whole world decided to delude itself and pretend that life was much simpler than it is because they were deeply traumatized and wounded. And I find that not entirely calming. It actually stresses me out sometimes. Richard, I want to hear from you about where you landed on this. I had the I had the exact opposite reaction, I think, in that, like, you know, I was watching it somewhat later at night, probably like 10, 30, 11, maybe, having a glass of wine, maybe kind of like subject to the uh, <laughs> sort of emotional whims uh, that, that that kind of hour in situation implies. But, like, I thought something about the movie being set when it was in the 1920s at this kind of you know, epoch era where, where a lot of people fell through the cracks. Um, and I felt, I found myself feeling really sad for the the actress who was kind of the villain, but also I just felt really bad for her that her career was going away because of something she couldn't control really. Um, but I thought that, you know, that this movie coming out in the early 1950s, looking back at this time, kind of almost leapfrogging back in time over this horrible war, over the depression to the time right before, and then to have these people you know, so joyful and singing these lovely songs and with such a kind of mellow moxie. I, I thought it was kind of heartbreaking and beautiful, actually. And, um, you know, to, to see Gene Kelly singing that song, which I'd seen many, many times before. I'd never seen the whole movie. I'd seen Make Him Laugh and Singing in the Rain. and I'd seen all the kind of um, the musical numbers before, but never kind of stitched together with the movie. Uh, but that Singing in the Rain moment in particular is just so gentle and small and sort of hopeful and I I don't know. I was really really moved by it in a way that I was I was expecting to have fun, but not to be to find something really deeper and almost kind of melancholy about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree that by by the you know late early part of the movie, it was I was coming around to it. I thought the the, the singing in the rain scene is is truly incredible. Make him laugh is fantastic. Um, I mean, all the stuff. You cannot just sit slack-jawed at Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor. Every single thing they do is incredible. And then when mm-hmm. Debbie Reynolds joins them, it's even better, right? They're all just incredible. And and there is something that very beguiling and maybe you're right, like a, a, a little bit heartbreaking about the simplicity, right? There was It was like a fetish yeah. for for being like a child, you know, and, and having having this kind of childlike simplicity and, and guilelessness. That is seductive. It's just it took me a minute to kind of <laughs> come around. To uh, it. Your Gen X cynicism. No, I mean it's <laughs> it's interesting because um, Jean Hagen, who plays um, Lena Lamont, um, she is the only performer who was nominated for an Oscar out of this, and I think it's so deserved. What's What's funny is. Um, We were talking about how Gloria Swanson lost the Oscar for Sunset Boulevard to Judy Holliday for Born Yesterday. What I think is really fun is that 
Gene Hagen, who plays Lee Lamont, was Judy Holliday's understudy on the Broadway version of Born Yesterday. So when she comes in to do her audition for Lee Lamont, she's basically just doing what Judy Holliday did in Born Yesterday because it's like something she trained. And she got not, it's like essentially a, a similar role, but with like a villainous spin to it. Um, and she got nominated for the Oscar like two years later. She lost to Gloria Graham. But like, I think that, um, you know, I almost think that if if Judy Holiday hadn't won, she, she would have won for this. I think she's incredible Ooh, in this. I love this and, alternate um, Oscar history. I just I think she's incredible. And what's fun is like it's just not like later when um, like Debbie Reynolds is dubbing um, Lena Lamont's voice, like that they use the real. Gene Hagen's real voice, real like cultured voice, because uh, I guess Debbie Reynolds was too Texan or like too too Western twangy sounding for them. So like the scene where she's dubbing the voice of the actress that she's dubbing, they use the actual actress. Or like when Jude, when Debbie Reynolds is singing like the big like ballad number, she's dubbed by another woman singing the role, Betty Noyes. And so it's just like there's layer upon layers of like you know, the exact movie tactics that they're setting up, they used uh, in this film as well. So I love where Cosmo Brown just invents dubbing. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and also the fact that the actors just have the ability to be like, well, make it a musical. I, we got yeah. an idea. Uh, like, sure. <laughs> yes, they put on a show. Um, <laughs> uh, I wanted to say that um, this all comes back to my talking about child actors on this, where I I have mixed feelings about it because while I want children to always have uh, childhoods that don't involve working, anytime I see someone who was raised in vaudeville the way that Donald O'Connor was, you watch Make Them Laugh and you know that that kind of skill is something you can only have if you have been doing Brat Falls since you were three years old on stage. Yeah. And it is yeah. so fantastic. I'm so glad that that does not exist. Like I, I'm sure vaudeville was wonderful in many ways. I'm so glad that kids Kids don't grow up that way anymore. But, oh, my God, I'm so grateful for it because he is such a phenomenon in this. He also won a Golden Globe, even though he wasn't nominated for an Oscar, as it turns out. He's so good. And, like, he's – I'm I, I you know, he's he did, like, a number of other things. There's this uh, film series he did, the Francis the Talking Mule uh, comedy film series. is like a franchise of the era uh, where he, like, had a talking mule. It was like a precursor to the Mr. Ed TV show, basically. It was a film series. And, uh, and he did a bunch of other, like, lower-level musicals. But Donald O'Connor is, like, he's incredible. And the fact that he wasn't, like, the biggest star in the world uh, is astonishing to me in this. But, like, just watching their various dance styles match up you know like gene kelly is like ballet trained like classical uh you know and then donald connor is like a vaudeville hoofer as you said uh and then debbie reynolds had no dance training whatsoever when she did this and she was 19 years old uh and that's that's it is self incredible i mean like it's mike's right she's playing like this very like innocent doll-like character that's not really that interesting beyond her first like sassy entrance but like uh but debbie reynolds has said like in later interviews she's like i was basically just playing my side she's like i wasn't a very good actress i couldn't really act she's like but that was just me i was literally a literal teenager around gene kelly so that's what i did and that well, and, and and Joanna, i assume you know the stories better than i do about how gene kelly like kind of tortured her in the process of yeah. trying to teach her how to dance well, and Donald O'Connor, too, not like tortured, but like Donald O'Connor said that he was like terrified of Gene Kelly, uh, that he like was so afraid of showing him that he was tired. He said that they uh, they did the Moses Supposes number. And then the same day they tried to film the Fit as a Fiddle number. Jesus. And he was like, he's like, I wanted to die. There's all these like deep knee bend leaps and I wanted to die. And he was like, he, he told the story about how Gene Kelly like through a tantrum he was like it wasn't working they have these fiddles right and and gene kelly like grabs donald o'connor's bow and he's like your bow is one one inch shorter than mine i can't work like this and throws a temper tantrum and like walks off set and donald o'connor like he's like i just stood there i didn't know if he was coming back i didn't know what was happening because like gene kelly is a star and the director of this film right and co-director and so eventually donald o'connor like goes in gene kelly's trailer being like hey uh what's going on and gene kelly was just like had his feet up and was laughing he's like i was just tired and i didn't want to dance anymore so i just decided to like end it because i'm tired um and um but yeah debbie reynolds had it a little uh or much harder because yeah she wasn't a trained dancer apparently she burst blood vessels in her feet for the good morning uh number and they had to like carry her back to her trailer but my favorite story that she tells and I've seen her tell it, so I know it's, well, it's it's at least Hollywood true, 
is that apparently she was like crying under a piano in a nearby soundstage because Gene Kelly had yelled at her again and she was really uh, upset. And Fred Astaire found her and comforted her and told her it would be okay and sent her back to set. And so like this idea of, of like this, you know, Gene Kelly's like contemporary, but also kind of rival being like, yeah, it's okay. He's a, he's an asshole, but it'll be <laughs> worth it. You'll look great. The picture will be a classic. Don't worry about it. Sort of thing. That's, that's one of my favorite Hollywood stories ever. Um, that story. But yeah, I mean, Gene Kelly was like, he was an exacting perfectionist, but I think you just like knew that going into a Gene Kelly project. All right. Well, I'm learning yeah. a lot about Gene Kelly. I didn't. I didn't realize how abusive he was. So we'll we'll, well, we'll continue I mean, to the exploration. He contained uh, many layers. Yeah. Like like I mean, like so many of the like quote unquote great men of that era. Like a lot of bad behavior, a lot of good behavior, kind of all rolled into one. You know, something that I also I think I think listening to you guys talk about this and 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 the kind of lore behind the the, the movie and um is is I, is I like where this movie is situated and then it was you know. 30 something years into the film industry, but about, you know, a much more nascent film industry and about trying to figure out what to do with this new thing and, and, and kind of persevering through gumption and talent and all that. And it just, I don't know, it made me feel good about people figuring out a new thing quickly and successfully, you know, with flair and ingenuity and, I don't know, it makes me think that, like, whatever new the reality... Will work. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Whatever new reality we stumble out into once this is, you know, over, whenever that is, like, that Hollywood is, has proven over the years with, you know, while bogged down by myriad problems still, it has proven itself very resourceful um, over the century that it's really been around and adaptable and um, in, in that ad- adaptation finds wonderful new forms and exciting new genres and avenues and talents um and so hopefully as singing in the rain shows in its yes albeit very rosy um way uh we can you know do the same thing with this kind of current um what feels like a crisis could be as the whatever the quote is be a christunity <laughs> after we're watching singing in the rain i watched um dolomite is my name again and um they sort of have some weird parallels <laughs> yeah the let's put on a show uh way yeah. of making a movie mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Anyway, it was really good the second time through. They, they worked weirdly well together. I, well, I, I want to ask you guys quickly before we finish. So, like, Singing in the Rain is, is considered one of the, like, the classic films of Hollywood about Hollywood, but not even nominated for Best Picture. The year, uh, the Oscars that year, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth won, which is a, which is, I don't know if you've never seen it, that is a trip of a movie. High Noon was nominated, Ivanhoe was nominated, Moulin Rouge, not that one, was nominated, and The Quiet <laughs> Man was nominated. Um, but... What's interesting, right, is that then, like, many years later, we have The Artist, which is basically doing a version of Singing in the Rain, right? Because it's about, like, you know, Jean Dujardin is, like, a very Gene Kelly-looking guy, like, going through this uh, traumatic transition from uh, silent film to talkies in Hollywood uh, sort of thing. And, uh, like, do you think any of the – or how much of the love that that movie got is rooted in – Hollywood wanting to get it right, having neglected Singing in the Rain, or Hollywood just like loving Singing in the Rain, so transplanting that love onto the artist, which is a film I think we could all agree just at the very least has not held up in the same way that Singing in the Rain did. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely benefits from, like, I don't know if anyone was thinking like, oh, Singing in the Rain didn't get what it deserved, but definitely like, oh, this reminds me of Singing in the Rain. I like it. That seems like a, um, a solid argument for the artist. High okay. noon. No, <laughs> High Noon's a great movie. <laughs> you give it that. I've never seen. I've never seen High Noon. I can sit here and like prattle about musicals all day long, but I my Western's knowledge is barren. I well, maybe let's do an when entire we... podcast where um, you and I talk about Singing in the Rain and High Noon. <laughs> okay. well, what if we do? What if we do? What if we combine them and do Paint Your Wagon? Western oh, musical, which I've never seen. <laughs> I at least know the yeah, music from Paint Your Wagon. So, Richard, now we're going to listen to your interview with Laura Lenny. I really enjoyed listening to it um, because she is exactly as, like, collected and interesting to hear talk, even though she's stuck in quarantine with a six-year-old. Anything we should know before we hear you guys talk? 
Well, just that we're, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're entering kind of unfamiliar territory to me, at least, where interviews are now conducted from my bedroom to a celebrity, I guess, in their living room or bedroom or wherever she was, her office, I don't know. And, you know, it changes the dynamic a little bit. It's certainly not the same thing as being in studio. But, um, you know, I think she was a good conversationalist for the, that kind of thing. Such a smart, centered person. Um, you can really hear the, the Juilliard training when she speaks about her craft. Um, yeah, and hopefully it will be an enticement to those who haven't to check out Ozark. Yeah, I'll credit you guys both. Um, I do uh, the automated transcripts for these, and uh, this one was like the cleanest that the robots could understand because both of you have such good diction and clear speaking. Um, so thank you for, well, I, for not I confusing too, the robots. I've been doing um, Juilliard home like virtual classes <laughs> since this started. Richard, I think you might be. I think you might be being scammed. <laughs> oh, oh dear, Juilliard doesn't have an eye in her. <laughs> Richard's going to start dubbing my voice for this podcast going forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Richard, let's listen to your conversation with Laura Lenny. Well, I have the distinct pleasure now of being socially distanced, but uh, digitally connected to Laura Lenny, one of the stars of Ozark. Laura, thank you for uh, talking to us today. My pleasure. Nice to hear your voice. <laughs> Yours too. Um, can I ask how, how you've been spending your time in uh, in quarantine? I am homeschooling a six-year-old. Oh boy. So <laughs> I am busy. <laughs> I have been very, very, very busy and enjoying it, but it's a lot. But it's it's nothing in comparison to what so many people are dealing with. Just a terrible, terrible, terrible time. It is. And I think that, you know, we're all sort of you know, when we have a moment looking to find something that is enlightening or entertaining, you know, some kind of diversion. And for me, you know, as a critic, watching all of Ozark season three, just really devouring it was exactly one of those respites. And um, particularly the arc of your character, Wendy Bird, um, which is, I mean, this woman has gotten darker and darker as this show has gone on. I mean, do you see it that way? Um, Well, I think she's sort of revealing herself more and more. You know, what I sort of love about all of these characters is how much they have all grown and changed over three seasons. You know, the fact that we were given a story that allowed for such room and such growth is is pretty unusual. So I think we've all been having an awful lot of fun sort of getting to know our own characters and, and then seeing how our characters react to everybody else. How much of Wendy's descent into this kind of criminal enterprise was foretold to you, you know, back when you were, you know, kind of talking to people about doing the job in the first place? Um, I, I didn't know where the story was going, but I had long talks with our showrunner, Chris Mundy, who's also our head writer, who leads that exceptional writer's room. You know, we talked a lot about how the potential of telling a storyline about identity could be pretty interesting and that it would give all of us a wide berth in which to explore different levels of personality and instinct and um, then would also enrich the plot and the narrative. So, you know, at the beginning of at the beginning of season one, you have this, the bird family who they don't know each other very well and they don't know themselves very well. And going through the trauma of being you know, uprooted from Chicago and thrown into the Ozarks and having to survive with, under enormous stress, um, it reveals an awful lot about who people really are. And I think probably, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people today are experiencing that as well in some form or another. You know, you sort of learn a lot about yourself, things that you are proud of and things that you're not so proud of in moments of great stress. So so not knowing exactly where, you know, the Bird family arc is going, particularly Wendy's arc is going, what are the challenges um, as an actor for sort of keeping your own sort of internal compass with who she is and where her morality is. I mean, how do you kind of manage that without knowing the ending? Well, that's the challenge of a long lead, you know, television series. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is hard. It's hard to do um, because you don't know where you're going. And so consequently you can't be, you have to craft things in a different way that will give you a little room. You have to be specific enough so that it will, be interesting and compelling, but not too much so that you are then caught if the writers go in a different direction. So you try and talk as much as you can to, to the writers, and they try and stay connected to you as well and see what you might be bringing to the table that they didn't anticipate, and maybe they can use that. Um, so it really is a partnership between 
the actor and the writers and the director as well to sort of let things unfold in a way that is that feels right and is organic so that you don't get too far ahead of yourself or too far behind yourself. But it's, it's the big challenge of doing uh, a series for a long period of time. But I would think that that, that that challenge is maybe part of the appeal. Is that, is that right? It can be, or it can be part of the big frustration as well. Right. You know, it's, there's, there's something wonderfully satisfying about having, knowing, having a whole map in front of you then you can be extremely specific and very detailed. And you sort of, you have to be careful working that way on a series that goes on for a long time because you don't want to box yourself into a corner. And you don't want to, you know, create a situation where the writers can't write you out of something or where you're stuck with one type of sort of personality trait for too long of a period of time. So the fact that they've allowed not only my character, but every other character on this series to constantly shed and grow and change and reveal is, you know, is really unusual. Yeah, Wendy has remained, you know, sort of, wonder, you know, wonderfully elusive. Uh, she, you know, she, she's, she's very resourceful, uh, which I guess is good for a character who's sort of open-ended. Um, we will have amply warned our listeners about spoilers, so I just want to ask you, um, is there a specific thing that's happened to Wendy, maybe in season three or, or, or the, other, the previous two seasons, that's really surprised you, like reading the script? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it all kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can see it clearly. It's not, and it's because these writers are, are writing not only for the story, but also I think a little bit for me as well. And so it does, so it's, it's, a, it's a good marriage between me, the writers, Wendy Bird, the plot for the whole thing, how my character then relates to, to Marty and to Ruth and to, to everyone else that she comes in contact with. And all the characters are like that. You know, it really is a, a great sort of kaleidoscope of personalities that shift and change all the time. And you have the opportunity uh, this season in particular to work with some great, I guess, guest stars or new ser- recurring uh, players. Um, you know, obviously you have Janet McTeer, who's fabulous. But um, and I-, I was so drawn to Mary Louise Burke, you know, the great um, theater actress. Uh, oh, isn't who, she great? Uh, yeah. Who, yeah. Yeah. Who plays, uh, you know, the therapist. And you have this scene with Jason that's comparable to the big blow-up fight in, in Noah Baumbach's marriage story from last fall. Uh, can you talk a little bit about shooting that particular scene and, and while, you know, this diminutive sort of woman is watching this happen? I mean, how did you kind of figure out the physics of that scene? Well, it's a wonderful scene because it really is, you know, sort of an, inev- an inevitable conflict that's, you know, expressed between the two of them. So it's, we've all, we've been sort of waiting to have that scene. Actually, there was one big fight in, the first season and now we've waited this long to have a really big showdown until season uh, into season three and they're the moments where you decide where they were where they realize where they are and then when they totally forget and are just engaged in the instinct of, of fighting someone and mary louise is you know just a, a new york theater legend and i've known her for a very long time and have always loved everything she's ever done she's also one of the funniest people on the planet so it was just great i mean every time you would hear her voice. You just, you know, would bring just so much to the whole insanity of the situation. Yeah, it's a dark moment, but it's also leavened by you know, like the, the, there's a certain there's a humor to it, um, which is a, a tricky balance to strike. But I think you guys managed to do it. Oh well, good. I'm glad you think so. Good. Yeah, I remember seeing Mary Louise Burke in. Um, she was in True West, I think, last fall on Broadway, and she shows up. You know, in the last scene or toward the end and it was just like oh I, I, she just brings such unique energy to everything so i'm always happy to see her pop up she was in a production of fuddy mirrors where she played a woman with aphasia which was one of the f- great like examples of comedic acting i've ever seen she was really exceptional so when i heard she was joining our company i was really i was very very excited well, you're also someone who's managed to balance, you know, f- uh, film work, TV work with theater. You you just had a run uh, in a show not too not too long ago. Before, kind of, you you got you finished right before this all everything shut down, right? I did. We finished a week. Was it a week before everyone shut? It was a week. Yeah. Yeah. How important is it to you to are, are do you have like a kind of strategy for balancing the, the different media, you know, between theater and film and stuff like that, or is it I mean, is there a plan for, for keeping that balance? 
Well, I mean, you can't really have a plan in this business. You can try to. I mean, you can have an intent, really, I think, more than a plan. Um, You know, I miss one medium when I'm not doing it. You know, when I'm doing television for a long period of time, I really miss doing film, and I miss the theater. And when I'm doing theater for a long period of time, I'll start to miss television and miss film. So it really is, if I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to jump on a movie for a few days, I'll go do it just because it's a different muscle. And I, you know, I just really enjoy all three um, more and more as I, as I get older, I really enjoy jumping from, from medium to medium. So I'm lucky that I've been able to do it. From what we can tell from the outside, um, Ozark seems to be a big hit for Netflix. You know, it's, we don't know not a lot about numbers, but it's, you know, won Emmys. It's, it's been a success. And yet it's not like being on the big C or another show where you have the weekly ratings and you, you know, people all sit down and watch it on Sunday night. And, you know, the conversation moves that way. In your experience of, you know, what is it like to be on one of these streaming shows and all the episodes come out at once? And do you hear from fans in different ways than you used to? Um, well, it's just so wild that people can just inhale a show in one sitting. Yeah. You know, five months of work is just inhaled in an evening. And that's, that's wild, but it's, you know, equivalent to doing a movie really also, you know, it's a sort of similar amount of time and, um, although this is a little bit, this is longer, but you know, it's just how the entertainment world is evolving, but I've, I've certainly never been associated with something that seems to have connected with so many different types of people, the breadth of, of how the show has hit every demographic has really been astounding to me. I think men like it as well as women. Old people like it. Young people like it. It crosses all sorts of barriers. It's, it's, um, there's something about it that has really broken through. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so glad that people seem to be enjoying it. And it's the nicest company on the planet. So it's also, it's very satisfying to me to see, you know, our producers and our writers and Jason and everybody receive such success because it's, it's just a wonderful group of people, and they deserve it. Have you, um, has anyone who works with the show, like, heard from people from that world, from Lake of the Ozarks, from Missouri? Like, what, what is the kind of local reaction to the show? Because it's not a place in America that gets featured in, you know, film and TV very often. And so I'm curious what their reaction to it has been, if, if you're aware of any. Well, I think, you know, what I hear is, you know, but I, what are people going to say to me? I mean, I, you know, some people are from the area are very um, positive about it, but I have no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm too removed from that area to really know. Yeah. Um, I know that there's a bar there that opened that, you know, I think, I think it's called Marty birds or something like that. And they have <laughs> drinks named after all the characters. So I know there's that. I, I'm, I'm not sure to be honest with you. I would, I would hate to, to say, you know, oh, everybody down there loves it when they don't, or everyone hates it when they don't. So I, I'm, I really don't know. Yeah. Is, is there any, you know, direction, you know, for season four? I mean, is, the, this current season, you know, once again, ends on a very grim note, uh, particularly for your character, and uh, w- with everything with um, Wendy's brother. And, you know, I think actually that scene in the car where you're, just f- where Wendy is just finally breaking down in this hugely almost like, you know, classical stage tragedy way. I mean, it, no, I don't mean to, to imply that it's, it's overdone. It's perfect for the, for the moment, but it's just so big. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about filming that particular scene and, and what was hard or, or kind of cathartic about that, I would imagine? Well, I was tired when we, <laughs> when we shot that scene. You know, we were all very tired at the end of the season. It was it was a very emotional season. It was hard to film. It was, and, you know, thank God everyone likes each other as much as they do. Thank God everyone is very aware and very grateful to be able to, to do Ozark and and that never goes away. So it makes even the toughest challenges much easier to do. But I, I was, I was tired at the end of that when we, when we filmed that sequence and, you know, you just sort of, you play the action of what's happening and then the emotion will follow if you've done all your work. So I just, I just tried to do as much work as I possibly could and then tried not to worry about that moment when it came and that it would be whatever it was. And that's just sort of what it ended up being. 
what is that work for you? I mean, in t- is it in terms of just like prep and, and, and are you drawing on, you know, like theater training or how does that kind of take shape for you in your, when you're, you know, crafting a moment? I'm, I'm pretty script based, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I try and find as many clues as possible within that the writers have given me. And then you do all that work. You do all the script analysis and you try and get to know the story as well as you can because you're filming out of sequence. It can be very, very easy to get caught and be disoriented and miss a moment or forget to plant something. Or So you have to be really clear about what's going on. And the last four episodes of Ozark season three, we filmed in one block. Mm-hmm. So those four episodes were completely filmed out of sequence um, continuously. So it was a challenge to keep it all clear and figure out what story are we telling. So you do all of that and then you sort of throw it away and you show up on set and you look in the eyes of the person who you're working with and you try and be as present and as honest as you can possibly be. And you let the story tell itself. You know, you try and get out of the way of, of the story. To that end, are you someone who gets so invested in your character that you have hopes for Wendy, you know, in season four, or do you not really think in those kind of terms? Oh, I I so completely trust my showrunner. Chris Mundy, I think, is an absolute wizard, and I thoroughly trust that whatever he wants to do, that's that's what I'm going to do. You know, my job is to flesh out the story that he's telling. Um, and that entire group of people who have been writing these scripts have just been extraordinary. So I'm, I will do whatever they tell me to do and be happy doing it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice, um, uh, it's nice to have that kind of confidence and leadership. Imagine that. Oh, it's awful when you don't. It really is. It can be absolutely agony when you, when you don't, but this is a very unusual situation. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a once in a lifetime job and I'm I'm very aware of that. Um, you mentioned, you know, the sort of practice of inhaling TV shows now, which is something that I do both professionally and just because I want to. Um, and one of those shows last year was um, was Tales of the City, which was another, um, I, which I, I reviewed, and it was another, it was, uh, that was on Netflix as well. And um, did you have any sort of kind of, now that it's been about a year, like uh, any um, kind of hindsight about that whole experience of going back into that world? It felt like it arrived um, at a very crucial time, and it felt really good to watch. So I'm wondering if it felt good to make in that same way. Oh, sure it did. You know, it's, you know that world is a wonderful world to spend time in, because Armistead Maupin is, is a wonderful human being. <laughs> so to, to base yourself in a, in a world that he originally created is always a good thing. You know, it was important to sort of examine, like, where we are now um, versus 25 years ago how much the world has changed, how there are entire new generations of people who have a completely different viewpoint and different things to offer that are, that, that, that's important and essential. And, and for all of us to sort of take stock and take a look at our history and, and see where, where we are. So I was glad to have the opportunity to do that. And I learned a lot doing it, a lot. You know, there's, there's so much about the LGBTQ community that I didn't know about because I'm old and, you know, and, and somewhat out of touch. The whole non-binary world, I, I knew very little about. I, a little bit, but not a lot. So it was, I was really, really happy to be given the opportunity to sort of put that out there a little bit for people to either recognize themselves in or to learn about or to, you know, start conversations or... You know, but it's it's an important evolution that's happening within identity, gender, sexuality, you know, how all those things are braided together and when they overlap and when they don't. So it's a worthy conversation to have. Yeah, what I liked about the series was that it was instructive, you know, and it was kind of cross-generational, but it wasn't didactic. It wasn't, you know, sort of shaming people for not, you know, being entirely up to date about terminology and things like that. Um, yeah, no, yeah. it's... You know, we're in such a strange period of time, and it's, it's awkward. It's hard to talk about race. It's hard to talk about gender inequality. It's uncomfortable to talk about all these things that we have to talk about So, in order to evolve. So I was happy to be in, involved in something that hopefully did it in a kind way, in a way that sort of accepts all of our foibles and our inabilities to express ourselves and our 
misunderstandings about each other and and the fact that, you know, there are a lot of people who have big, huge open hearts that just need a helping hand trying to figure it all out. Oh, yeah, I think it, it definitely does that. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious in, in these, you know, we obviously live in particularly politically charged times. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe anyone could have said that at any era, but um, this is the one we're in. And I'm, I'm curious if how often or if ever do you approach your work politically um, in terms of picking roles or 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 you know, themes or anything like that. Is that something that's front of mind when you're considering your next job at all? Well, I think the arts are inherently political. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, whenever you engage in anything, there's a, there, politics is a, is an element of it, whether it's the politics of personality or the polit or governmental politics or commenting on culture or where we are, you know, I think it's an essential part of any artistic endeavor. But do I do I choose parts for a, a political agenda? Not often. Um, tales, yes. I didn't do that originally, not with the first tales. I was too young and didn't really know. I just loved it and loved the story and loved the spirit of it and really didn't understand how important that that show would be to so many people. With this, with this other incarnation, I was very aware of it, and, and there was a political um, agenda to it but more based on a, a human level than on a policy level. Yeah, and I think it's nice you've been able to strike a balance between something like Tales of the City and something like Ozark, both, you know, really meaty things to tuck into, but, you know, very sort of thematically and in, intentionally different, um, which is, you know, just a testament to... to they're sort to, of both about, they're kind of both about identity and about how yeah. people deal with each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and about yeah. how people can learn about themselves as time goes on and how they learn about each other. You know, with, with Ozark, you're starting with a family at the beginning of season one who, who they function pretty well with each other, but they don't know themselves and they don't know each other at all, at all. And you watch them sort of recognize their own personality and their own ability and their own power. And then they start to see it in each other in ways that, that takes them all by surprise. Um, well, before I let you go back to uh, to your your now first job as a uh, homeschooler, um, you know, we're talking about inhaling and binging and all that stuff. Is there anything that you have had any time to watch uh, recently or, or are looking forward to watching in this time of, uh, you know, sheltering in place? Well, I sort of want to, I have like a desire to go to the movies that make me feel safe and comfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I want to go back to all the old movies. You know, and when I'm when I have an evening where I'm not so exhausted, I'll do that. You know, I'll throw on Dodsworth or Goodbye, Mr. Chips with Robert Donat or, you know, one of the old one of the old classics. Yeah, I recently watched a Brief Encounter on the Criterion Channel, uh, and that was perfect. Yeah, I mean, sad, but like just warming at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's any anything we can do to help center ourselves right now, I think, is a good thing. Indeed. Well, you know, for hopefully for some of our listeners that will be watching your wonderful work on Ozark season three or on Tales of the City. Um, so I hope they'll go and do that. And, you know, I, uh, good luck to you in all this crazy time. I really appreciate you taking the time, Laura, uh, to talk with us. My pleasure. I hope. Uh, stay safe. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Okay, that does it for this week's show. As mentioned earlier, we are uh, going to be continuing to do movie rewatches, and there's a Western option this time. Um, we are eliminating the 50s from competition because we've now done two movies set in the 50s, and it's time to uh, expand. And I decided that we should do Best Picture winners because we've been talking Oscars adjacent, but uh, no winners yet. So this week's choices, and we'll have a poll on Twitter as well, uh, Casablanca. The French Connection, Ordinary People, and Unforgiven. So we're hopping around decades. Um, we all have a strong suspicion that Casablanca might be a favorite here, but I encourage you guys all to uh, to expand your horizons. Don't go for the obvious classic. Maybe pick a, a different, more modern classic. And think about Oscar narratives. <laughs> yeah, Richard and I would like an excuse to finally watch Unforgiven, right? Um, because... Well, I've, I've seen two-thirds of Unforgiven in piecemeal over the course of 20, 30 years. <laughs> but I think that's about got, as much as I've seen. I got through like a third of it. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't vote for this. Um, when do they get to the singing, though? That's what I, I'm just waiting for that. <laughs> I've also never seen The French Connection, though, and that's something I would love an opportunity to watch. I, I, mean, I, never, I never have either. 
I'll, re- I'll rewatch Casablanca. I won't be mad about it, but um, yeah. I haven't seen Casablanca in a really, like probably in college. Um, so I would be delighted to rewatch that too. Really, I, I mean, I don't, I think we all pick movies. We'd be happy to watch all four of them. So hopefully uh, we, we get a good one. Anyway, uh, so go cast your votes. Um, we'll be back next week. You can find us at VanityFair.com in the meantime, including Richard's review of Quibi. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard? Rylas. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the quote most likely to appear in a Quibi ad campaign goes to Katie Rich. Quibi has no Nazi content. <laughs>